You're listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. I'm your host, Trish Glose, and I'm coming at you from my kitchen. Megan Dorman on the podcast today. Megan's an award-winning mixologist, bartender, and educator in New York City. She talks about growing up in Connecticut as a twin with Grandma D, who lived right across the yard. Grandma D, the eternal hostess, throwing all sorts of parties for any sort of reason, really sounds like my kind of woman. But Megan says it was Grandma D's influence all of these years that really led her down the paths that she went down. She talked about running a bar and working in a bar during the pandemic, the challenges that she and so many others faced, and really being in the background of people's most important days. She got into why she really loves what she does and what she says is near and dear to her heart, being the curator of bar magic. Here's Megan Dorman. this idea to talk with um, mixologists and bartenders and just really ladies within the either hospitality industry or the spirits business. And um, I got your name from Lynette Marrero, who you obviously know very well. Um, I love Lynette. Yeah. She's so, oh man, she's a force, isn't she? (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. So uh, she mentioned you. So I I looked you up and did a little research. Holy cow, woman, the things that you've done. I'm really excited to talk to you. (laughs) Yeah, seriously, really excited to talk to you. You're an award-winning mixologist, bartender, educator. Um, You have a website, megandorman.com. One thing that really stuck out to me, um, you say on your website, what's really near and dear to your heart is you're the curator of bar magic. Yeah. What? So wait, before we get started, because I, I want to hear a, a lot from you, but what is bar magic to you? What does that mean? So for me, there's just something very special and hopefully we all appreciate it more after being home so long, but more than just the drinks, it's like going out. Bars to me are like the last adult haven where it's all grown ups mm-hmm. in the room. The lights are low, the candles are on, the music is hopefully really good, the drinks are good. Um, you know, the bartenders and servers are there to kind of interact with you, not just about the drinks, but about the whole experience. Mm-hmm. And when I hope you know, and everybody out there listening knows, you know, when you have a good magical night in a bar and like something special just happens and you can't predict it. So I'm always like telling people to stay very present. Yes, we're very serious about the drinks, but we're really here to let a little magic happen and you need to leave room for that. Oh my gosh, 100%. I love that. I love bar magic. Um, Megan Dorman, where are you from originally? Brantford, Connecticut. I'm a Northeast girl. Okay, um, I love it. I read somewhere about Connecticut, something online about Connecticut is really just like, uh, it's not really a state. It's just where all kids go to boarding school. There is quite a few boarding schools. Uh, I was I went to public school, but yeah, Connecticut's one of those states that is like it's like a little bit of everything, even mm-hmm. though it's tiny. Uh, most people just think I think of yeah Greenwich and the prep schools, but yeah. it's a nice uh, you know four seasons on the shoreline. It's a nice place. A <laughs> uh, lot, yeah, really beautiful seasons in Connecticut. What was it like growing up there? Yeah, small town. It was really fun. Mm. Uh, I would say medium town. I think like these days you know when I've gotten to travel a little more I'm like oh that's a small town Mm. um so I grew up in like a medium town right next to New Haven so we were close to kind of the one of the bigger cities in Connecticut I'm a twin so I always had a buddy um yeah I grew up around a lot of my family uh is still there and then I have two younger brothers um always had a dog you know so it was it was a fun time perfect Always have a dog. Always, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, identical twin, fraternal twin? Fraternal twin, which I'm always thankful for because it's great being a twin, but it's also a bit intense. So mm-hmm. I can't imagine looking exactly like someone else. Mm-hmm. We had our own lanes at certain points. <laughs> no, for sure. And I'm sorry, a, a female twin, male twin? Yeah, Kate. Kate, Kate. is my girl twin. Okay. So, um, what was that like? I've actually interviewed several twins on this podcast and I just find (laughs) it so fascinating. Um, a lot of them have said, especially the identical twins, one would be humming a song in their head and the other twin would like whistle it out loud. Like how creepy is that? Uh Right. I mean, my mom says that we had our own language before we could talk, that we talked to each other. 
And she always tells the story about um, we were sharing a room and her poking her head in around the corner to, you know, when she was going to bed and my crib was empty and it, you know, it was probably 15 seconds, but it was like, oh, oh, doing the math that I had like gotten out, crawled across the night table and I was with my twin. And then of course everything was fine. Of course. Uh, but we, yeah, we're, we're like best friends that I don't think would be best friends unless we were born together. Cause we are so different, but there is something about someone literally knowing your whole life. So you don't have to explain certain stories or like, I know when my sister, I know when we're out or we're at a like party or something and it's time to go, like I can see it in my sister's face. Like, all right, the twins are out. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you guys did for, you know, the first few months of your life, you spent quite a lot of time together. So I, oh yeah, <laughs> I would hope you have a secret, <laughs> a secret language. Um, no, that's really cool. Tell me about Grandma D. So Grandma D is my grandma on my mom's side, mm -hmm. and she grew. We grew up basically across the yard from her. Um, a lot of my family still lives in the same area of Connecticut, um, and we lived really close. So we always like had a little backyard path back and forth and we'd run over all the time. But my grandma for, I think for better or worse, depending on who you ask, was like always having a party. So if you were turning like, I think some of her kids like at a certain age was like, I'm like 36 and a half. We don't have to celebrate this mom, but like everybody's coming over. If people were out of town, like on July 4th, we had another July 4th later just to have it. Um, but I really, when I look back now on what I do, I always had like a little job, you know, I was checking people's coats when they came in, or I was mm -hmm. asking people, I knew that everybody had to be offered a drink when they came in. So I always had a little job and it was always really fun for me that, I don't know, people were coming over and mm -hmm. I had a job. So I do think that has like played into, it takes a while before, you know, all the pieces come together of what you're going to do and how it's going to be. But I do feel like always getting people together and like knowing, you know, there's something really not just the food element or drink element, like actually nourishing about being in a room with a lot of people that are excited to be there. And that was a big part of growing up for me was Grandma D was always having something next door. The eternal hostess sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone that married into the family was like, okay, did not realize I was <laughs> signing up for so many family events, Aww. but uh, it was really fun for me. <laughs> I bet. I think there's um, kind of two types of kids. Those who, when, when adults come over, they like skedaddle and, and head for their room. Mm -hmm. They don't want anything to do with it. And there's those who stick around because they're so curious, maybe a little bit more oh, mature, yeah. I guess. That was me. I was the one entertaining the adults and, hey, look at this, watch this. Or yeah, if grandma had a, a job for me, I was all over it. And it sounds like you were the same way. Yeah. Or I knew when to be like very quiet so I could just hang out in the corner and spy on everybody and pick up the grown up gossip, you know? Yes. No, that was the best <laughs> when they forgot that you were there and they started talking exactly. about something a little scandalous and you're like, oh, don't <laughs> don't make it. Don't make a peep. Did, did yeah. Grandma D, because I know when it comes, especially when it comes to alcoholic beverages, at least in my house, that wasn't a, a big thing growing up. But at these parties, was that something for Grandma D? I mean, did she serve cocktails or? Not much. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard I've heard my family called a volume white family uh, before. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of like, <laughs> uh, a lot of Chardonnay. Um, always some Irish whiskey, definitely. Ooh. And, you know, if somebody brought an especially nice bottle, like that would be a thing, but no, it was pretty, pretty like beer and wine and like a little whiskey as it got later was kind of the style. Nice. Is grandma D Irish? Yes. Okay. Uh, a lot of my family is Irish and has been here for a long time, but she moved from Dublin when she was quite young. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So the whiskey, Irish whiskey was probably somewhat prominent at times. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yes, okay. Exactly. Super cool. So let's talk about you growing up. You're in high school. What, what, what is your idea of like when you grow up, what are you, what are you planning to be in life? Well, that changed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was definitely the kid that, and I think a lot of this, I've heard this from other kids. Everybody <gasps> wanted to be a marine biologist at a certain point. Yes. Um, 
There's the dogs. Yeah, there's, right? there's the dogs barking. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, I just, I read that somewhere else. Like, marine biologist was such mm-hmm. a hugely popular occupation. I mean, you could get paid to hang out with dolphins, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I really, I really didn't know what I wanted to do for a long time, which is part of why I went to college in New Haven, mm. because I, like, I knew I wanted to move or do something else, but I think part of it was that I had never seen it. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I knew more what I didn't want to do, um, but I was very conscious of spending too much money at school when I like had no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although English teacher definitely came up a few times. Um, but at the end of the day, I realized I wanted to do something creative and it took me a few different tries to figure out exactly what that meant. And now I feel like I found a good mesh of, uh, a steady job, but with a creative side to it and something that's really different every day, which I realized Mm -hmm. was important to me too. Oh, for sure. And the other thing I really like about hospitality is you kind of always know how you're doing, whether it's well or poorly or somewhere in the middle. Whereas, um, you know, I did some work in publishing and music uh, beforehand. I did a lot of assistant work. And sometimes you see that there's projects that, uh, you know, you work on them for months and you never really know where it lands or how it does. Mm -hmm. And something I realized early on was I love the immediate gratification and like, all the feedback that comes through working in hospitality that mm-hmm. I kind of always know how it's going, which is comforting to me. Very true. What were some of those, you said publishing music. So it sounds like you're a little arty, a little artsy. Yeah, I was definitely, I was a, a studio art kid in high school, which we had like a program where you could kind of choose blocks of time for art. And mm. we had a very indulgent teacher that let us do like jewelry or printmaking, or we had a dark room in our high school actually. So I got to do some of that. Um, I was never like a theater person or a very like outgoing artistic person, but I did a lot of art. Yeah. And um, so I interned my senior year of college in New York um, at a fashion label at Rockaware. So that also had a music and movie element to it. And I really didn't love the fashion right away, but I loved all the other things that were going on. Um, and this was like early 2000s. So I also worked like in music and publishing kind of at the worst time. And I like graduated with a job and then like for a few years made less money every year. And I was like, I don't, <laughs> pretty sure that's not- You're like, wait a second. The that we're after, yeah. So I always bartended on and off, especially if I was working freelance because that's how I, I bartended all through college. My mom worked in restaurants. Um, and then the cocktail thing was taking off in New York. And that's when I really got to see like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a job I enjoy. Actually, the hours don't really bother me. I'm kind of a night owl anyway. And it has this creative element with like the cocktail scene really taking off that it wasn't just um, opening beers and like pouring vodka sodas that like we could put our own spin on it. And that's like what really yeah. got me. I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually wrote that down as a question, which I'll get to. What did mom do in restaurants? So my mom also did a, a little bit of everything. Um, when I was very young, she, uh, well, she was a server at a certain point that mm-hmm. I don't remember, but um, she was working kind of a, like doing bookkeeping for a restaurant down the street from us. And I do remember like sitting at the bar and being allowed to have goldfish and the little uh, maraschino cherries yes. while she was doing something. Um, so it was me and my sister. And then I have two younger brothers. So she would also like, she served at the seafood restaurant for lunch because it was mm-hmm. flexible. Um, she did a little catering work. She did a lot of, and part of that, you know, I definitely took on, um, mm-hmm. maybe I didn't recognize it right away, that mm-hmm. it can be flexible, right? You could work lunch, you could work at night, you could only work when they call you for something. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom did a lot of that because it was pretty flexible around us. Right. And it seems that a lot of people, whether you're putting yourself through school or you're in college or you're just transitioning, lots of us have worked in a restaurant it, or in the mm-hmm. hospitality industry just to kind of make it more broad. So that could be you know, front of the house or as a server or behind the bar, whatever. At what point do you think for some people it's, you know, a job to get by and then it turns into, and then it turns into a career. I mean, that's actually, 
That's actually a thing. I mean, I remember my mom saying like, you know, I don't want you to be, you know, I don't want you to be a server for the rest of your life. And I'm thinking to myself, that's a, it's a great job, first of all, mm-hmm. but then it can develop into other things, right? Which is kind of, it sounds like what, what happened to you. It turned into, it turned into an amazing career. Yeah. For me, I really feel like I found a lane mm-hmm. and I didn't know exactly what mine was. And I, I put a lot of things together and I saw, I saw something developing and it was partially the right time and partially me seeing it and kind of taking advantage. And like you mentioned, Lynette, like I have a good group of friends that we've kind of all mm-hmm. been on this journey together about mm-hmm. really kind of paving our own way and something that bars have been around forever, but this particular kind of cocktail scene taking off, um, being part of, you know, the early, not exactly the beginning, but the early part of it allowed us to really carve out something for ourselves Mm -hmm. if, you know, you kind of took that opportunity and ran with it. Um, So I think I lost track a little bit. No, no, no. No, you're good. Um, I just, it's, it's kind of a conversation that I've, this is why I've been wanting to talk to mixologists in particular, but, you know, I've even seen people in some of my favorite restaurants who were servers or then maybe hostesses and now are running running a program, whether it's at a winery or another restaurant or yeah. a group of wineries or restaurants. So I just think it's, it's something that the hospitality industry, uh, it, for me, it sounds like a lot of times gets overlooked. It's a huge, huge thing. Um, and, and you can find a lot of opportunities within the hospitality industry. Definitely. And we do, I think a lot of people take on things like you mentioned, like, oh, well, yeah, but eventually you do something else or, and right. people ask you at work all the time, well, what else do you do? Right. And sometimes, you know, it's like, this is it mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's great. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, you know, when I was, when I was in college, I only had to work one night a week because I made enough money, my little spending money that I had a lot more time to focus and I could just, you know, go out a couple times or buy some gas or something. Mm-hmm. And then when I was freelancing and I was trying to put a lot of things together, hospitality really helped me do that. And then at a certain point, like 2008, 2009, when I realized like, I just want to put roots down somewhere and make this work. I was bartending at Rain's Law Room. I was on the opening staff there and it was, it took about six months to kind of really uh, cement together. But after that, it was really busy and it, you know, I kind of saw a lane that like someone really needs to be in charge of this because, you know, it's getting busy. We need to make sure we have everything that the standards are up. But also I had worked at places where no one was really in charge and you could kind mm-hmm. of see that. Sure. Um, especially just being an employee where you're like, well, we don't have the run for this drink and it's printed on the menu and that kind of frustrating thing. I didn't want Reigns to operate like that. And I love the mix of people that are like very career oriented about Mm -hmm. it and that we always have, we always have, uh, you know, a yoga teacher or an actor or an artist or someone that just moved to New York and is trying to figure out exactly what they want to do. So I love the balance of that. It, I think it can be hard from both just what we grow up with to be like, Oh, I'm actually just going to do this. (laughs) And that's right that can be my lane. Right. And there are like so many opportunities and it is a physical job. So sometimes at a certain point it's the hours or the standing up that Mm -hmm. kind of get people, but there are so many opportunities to kind of work in this space and either manage or the need for human resources and hospitality is huge or um, people, you know, we have lawyers that just focus on hospitality because they love it. Hmm. And there's all these attached things Sure. To hospitality that can kind of give you that same, the same energy that you probably love about it that, you know, might work for you at a different life stage. But I find that a lot of people want to stay attached in some way to this energy because it is like, it is so fun to be around. Yes. I was just going to say that exact same thing that you find even restaurant owners, you know, they started out as maybe a bartender or then they were a server and then they just got attached to that energy and the hours. And it's a fun Mm -hmm. time. It's a fun time, right? To be at work when everyone's out playing and, and you get to, you get to be there too, for sure. So yeah, I've, I've heard that a lot that it's just, 
the kind of the hospitality bug to be broad about it bites you and and you get mm-hmm. you get attached. Yeah, one thing about Rain's Law Room and I didn't notice until, you know, it kind of came around the maybe the second year we were open is it's it's like a little speakeasy, super mm-hmm. romantic, all these little nooks and like to be in the background of like where people fall in love is like I never get tired of it. And I it hadn't totally occurred to me, but at a certain point I was kind of doing a little bit of everything, so I was answering all the emails that came in. And someone had contacted us because they had their first date there and they wanted to come back and take engagement photos. And I was like, absolutely, I'll come in at 10 a.m. and open the bar and, <sighs> you know, we'll, we'll just make this happen. But then it kept happening. Hmm. And people wanted to come in and propose and have their party and bring their family in when they were visiting, you know, around like the holidays. I meet sure. everybody's parents because they want to show off where they're drinking. Um, so it was kind of that like back being in the background to very important things is another thing that has really hooked me about hospitality. Yeah. In fact, I think you uh, said that on your website, being in the background of people's most important days, which yeah, especially in New York where, you mm-hmm. know, we don't really have people over. We live in tiny spaces. So we're doing like our big things are out. Which yeah. Is really fun to help people make that happen. I love that. I was um, proposed to at a restaurant bar and it's a very special place. And every time we go back, we like to sit in our booth. So yeah, it's a, that's a thing. That is a thing for sure. Oh, I love that. In fact, I looked up Rain's Mm -hmm. law room and, um, it's it's in New York city, correct? There's, or there's two locations. Yeah. yeah, So the original one is, uh, Rain's law room on 17th street Mm -hmm. in kind of the Chelsea Flatiron neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Then we opened Dear Irving, which is basically on the other side of Union Square on Irving and 17th. And then they both have sister hotel locations mm. that opened a little more recently. Uh, Rain's Law Room at the William Hotel on the east side and Dear Irving on Hudson, which is in a Times Square hotel. So that's mm-hmm. been a separate adventure. And super cool. Um, I looked this up too. The Rain's Law is actually what it's the bar is named after. Um, a law passed mm-hmm. uh, March of 1896. It was a liquor tax. The whole point was to hopefully curb the cons- consumption of alcohol, which it, which is what that law. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. So um, before prohibition, they were really trying to get people to slow down and it didn't work quite that well. It didn't work. No, it didn't work at all. Um, I do want to talk to you about creating bar programs and kind of what that looks like. But first, going back to really, you said, you know, the scene where cocktails started to become the focus when it was going out. It wasn't really just beer and wine anymore or a shot of this, or Mm. it it really started to take off this whole world of cocktail making. And then you sort of saw, Hey, I'm good at this. So yes, it was the right time. But for you, where did that click for you? Was there a moment where you were like, Whoa, I can, I could, I could make a career out of this. Was there a moment or did you just push, push, push. And then here you are. Well, there was definitely one moment where I was still doing a few other little jobs while Reigns was getting open. Mm -hmm. It was open, but I would say the business was very up and down. It wasn't that consistent. I loved it, but I never knew like how much money I would make per night or something like that. And I was doing a still a little bit of assistant work. And I had this one brunch shift at this place called Kitchenette in Harlem, which was like, I would, I could go there with like no sleep and just like kind of do it. It would be super busy, guaranteed money, go home and take a nap. Um, (laughs) And Reigns opened in January, 2009. It was probably April or May of 2009. I put in my notice for my brunch shift. And like, that was the commitment that I'm going to see this through. This is going to be my home. It's going to be my only job. So then I really focused on Reigns. And later that summer, we pretty much felt established. And I knew that we had to redo the menu and we were going to start like contributing our own drinks to it. So that was another move of like, I see an opportunity here and I'm going to, I basically spoke up to the owners and was like, I can do this. We need somebody that's really in charge of making sure we have everything we need. And I felt like I had built a good rapport with the staff. And it's always challenging when you're still one of the staff, you know, I didn't have an official title or I wasn't sure. on salary or anything, but mm-hmm. you know, you're like a level up kind of organizing it. So that did teach me, started to teach me different things about 
you know, working with people and team building. And I really like that and continued to do that as the business grew. Um, but I think it was really making that full time commitment that this is going to be my home and like start to see it through. And then it kept progressing from there. Was there a little bit of a gut check where you're like, holy shit, this is going to be my only job? Was it scary? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Especially like, I think I waited a week um, before I was thinking about it, thinking about it. I'm going to put on my notice and I had like another busy brunch and I was like, oh, I can't do this. This is crazy. And then Mm -hmm. the next week, uh, it was between that, like, it was getting busier. It rains that like, basically going to brunch with no sleep was like, I was like, okay, this is, this is it. I got to call it. But then it did spur me to really commit like that extra, you know, maybe five or 10% that was missing from Reigns to make it all in. (laughs) And talking with Lynette, cause I have interviewed Lynette Marrero for those who don't know. She's a badass. Um, she <laughs> she taught a master class. Um, that's where a lot of people have seen her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I interviewed her. I just wanted to sh- give her her interview a shout out. It's episode one twenty three. If anybody wants to uh, listen to that, but Lynette, you met Lynette when? Around that same time, okay, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, she had been a bartender at Freeman's, which was a pretty popular restaurant mm-hmm. in the Lower East Side and was just switching over to do brand work for the Copper Rum at that point. And, and that's how I met her. She and I have talked about that this industry, meaning, I guess, when working behind the bar, very male dominated, correct? Mm-hmm. There, yeah. At this time, were there a lot of, of you gals behind the bar, a lot of female mixologists out there? Was, I mean, or were you guys pretty rare? I would say it was pretty rare, but there was a small group mm-hmm. of us and a big part of what Lynette did once, especially once she started doing brand work was get us together because one thing about working, especially then is I was working five nights a week at Reigns, and, you know, we worked late. I didn't really go out after, right. I went out with my like couple friends one night a week. So, uh, like Erin Reese at that point um, was working. She wasn't quite a death company yet, but Erin Reese, Jillian Vos, uh, who's now at the Dead Rabbit. Like there was a small group, mm-hmm. but I would say I rarely saw them because probably of our schedules. And we didn't really have anyone like bringing the community together. And I think luckily, and Lynette and I saw this early and it's probably part of why we're so close is it wasn't us like the competition wasn't between us but we knew that you know for example like there's a james beard charity dinner and um, taste of the nation and stuff like that like Mm -hmm. at a certain point only one woman was going to get picked like it was going to be me or lynette or aaron sure it was never going to be all three of us sure hopefully today it would be that would be great but (sighs) 2009 it was it was one of us but we saw that there was um it was better for us to like build our community than trying to be like the only one out there. So that was, mm. I, w- I didn't think about it so much then, but I see that like that is a support system that I still rely on. And I'm glad that we a- approached it like that versus trying to be the only female bartender in New York city or something like that. No, hugely. It's a game changer, isn't it? When um, we're seeing that more and more, thank goodness, this community of women really coming together to support each other and help each other out. I'm seeing it on this podcast, reaching out to women specifically to interview, um, like Lynette, for instance. And she's, you know, mm-hmm. she wrote me back and I remember she said, I I want to talk to you about creating an opportunity. And I read that and I was like, whoa, like, it's not just like, yeah, I'll do the interview for you. It's, I think she could see like, no, I'll, I'll do this interview for you. I'll help you out for sure. This whole idea of women helping women, like it, it definitely is becoming a positive trend again. Thank goodness. And it's nice to Mm -hmm. see that even back then you guys weren't competing with each other. You were supporting each other and helping each other out and really building each other up, which I think. Yeah, definitely. So, so, so important. And Lynette uh, is very, she's so great at like verbalizing Mm -hmm. uh, things that I think that we all think, but, you know, truly believing before you actually knew it was true that there is more out there. Mm -hmm. It's not so scarce that it's, it's only me, only I can do this. Yeah. Um, Only she can do that job. 
and also we're really good at what we do. Yeah. So the more we do it, the more people see it, the more opportunities there are. And when Lynette's busy, she calls me. And when I think there's something good for her, I pass it on to her. And, you know, we all have younger bartenders that we've trained at this point. And, and at a certain point, it's time for them to take a trip or do a job or something that I've done before. I love that. That's awesome. Um, yeah. In fact, she, you know, even created speed rack or coat, I think helped create. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speed rack. Yeah. Co-founded speed, speed rack, yeah. which highlights female mixologists in the industry. So fast female bartenders. I know. It's so cool. I've seen so fast. So fast. <laughs> so fast. It's super cool. Uh, let's get back to creating bar programs because, um, mm-hmm. in your career, I mean, how many bar programs have you created so far? So five. Okay. Although in the past uh, year or two, I feel like (laughs) at a certain point I would have said I've opened five bars and I've opened like 15 because they all closed and reopened and it was different every time. Sorry. Um, But really five. That's okay. Uh, Rain's All Room, Uh Dear Irving. I consulted on Lantern's Keep, which was reopening a hotel bar at the Iroquois Hotel. Um, So that was like a shorter stint. Uh, Rain's Law Room at the William Hotel, mm-hmm. and then Dear Irving on Hudson. What does that look like, uh, creating a bar program? What does that look like? So for me, I've been thinking about it for a long time, like yeah. 13 years. But like, for example, in the beginning at Rain's Law Room, we opened uh, 2009. And so the, the big bars at the time were Milk and Honey, Pegu Club, Flatiron Lounge. And... Flatiron had kind of taken a step away from like the super classics, but for the most part, people that were doing cocktails were doing classics. Mm -hmm. And by that, um, for anyone that doesn't know, like really cocktails first came about in New York City, mid 1800s. The first bartending book came out in 1862, I believe. And it was like a big thing in the cities was to go to these bars and these bartenders had followings, but you know, with the Reigns Law, Temperance, then Prohibition, this kind of culture of mixology dies off and we have these less exciting drinks, less uh, skilled bartenders for a while. And the cocktail movement really tags onto both all these cocktail nerds finding each other on the internet Mm -hmm. and the kind of farm to table movement in Mm -hmm. terms of returning to flavor, thinking about quality, because I remember bartending early, whereas, you know, people would definitely have an opinion about what they were going to eat, but they really had kind of no opinion about what they would drink. Right. It was like they drank Captain and Coke. That was their thing. And they drank it. That was it. Or, um, you know, they drink Chardonnay and they drink only that. And now we're kind of getting people to think about the base spirit and like Mm -hmm. what flavor that actually lends instead Mm -hmm. of covering it up and being like, well, what else are you doing today? Like, did you just have a big dinner? Do you want a nightcap? Do you want something rich? Like, are you just starting out for the night? Like you want to go something a little lighter And now it's like still very fun to have those conversations, but people were like, oh, what? I don't know. I only drink, you know, I only drink Belvedere. And it's like, that's great when you want it, but you know, just an idea. Like we could try something else. We Mm -hmm. have this like, and we were, and we were getting a lot of things that were either just coming back on the market because of the interest or, you know, just people weren't that experienced with. So it was really fun to, introduce people to new things. But also I realized early on that at Reigns, we had to still like find our own lane. Mm-hmm. We couldn't just be milk and honey 2.0 or another Pegu club. Like we had to take our own little spin on things. Um, and that's like, I built a menu instead of just drinks or just classics, you know, by profile. So I mm-hmm. felt like I could get people to branch out more if they were just in the mood for, something light and refreshing or something with fruit or something a little bit bitter. They would think less about the actual spirit Mm -hmm. because people were kind of so tied to what their drink of choice was. Yeah. Um, And, and that worked for me and I got people to branch out and be more adventurous. And we have a big thing in our bars called bartender's choice, which is people can just kind of tell you what they like or even what they don't like, and we'll make something for them and introduce them to something new. And we really have this trust with guests that, you know, you're going to have something probably new, maybe that you've never had, um, or you rediscover like a great old classic, mm-hmm. but you know, we kind of guide you and a in New York drinks are expensive, right? So yeah. you want to know that like, you're really getting something special and memorable. 
And I do the same thing when I go out to like one of my friends bars or restaurants is I've been making decisions all day. Like, can I just tell you what I'm in the mood for? Yep. And you bring me something. Make me you know, drink. I can, yeah. I can tell you two words and like, can you please just take it from there? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we really do that with people and it's a big part of um, not just the menu, but training bartenders to like have this backup canon of classics and consistency. Yeah. Yeah. Well, much like the, some of the masters of wine and sommeliers that I know, they're the the amount of knowledge that they have in their brain about wine is a little overwhelming. You guys, mm-hmm. it's the same for you. I mean, there I feel like there's a bazillion liquors and spirits out there. You have to be fairly well educated on all of them, correct? The flavor. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Go ahead. And yeah. how they're gonna work together. Um, which is part of making a new drink, but also when people are talking to you about what they like, yeah, deciphering, okay, those two things go together. That's what we can do. Yes. That's what is very, very impressive to me that, yeah, you can maybe start with bourbon, but then the other components that you add to this cocktail for all for balance, right? Because it can't be, mm-hmm. it can't be too, too boozy. Or I mean, I guess it can, it can be whatever it wants to be, but I don't know. You tell me. I mean, is that is that really the goal for a, a good mixologist to create a well-balanced drink or, you know, build those components of, of different flavors? I mean, it's just it's it's mind boggling to me. It's awesome. Yeah, I always think about it definitely in terms of balance. Yeah. And layers. OK. Like if if you have a drink at Rain's Law Room or Dear Irving, like I really I of course want the first sip to be great, but then I want there to be like a secondary layer I want you to want another one. I want you to think about it and come back to this bar because they need yeah. this drink. Yeah. And that's how I feel like bars can differentiate mm-hmm. themselves. And there's a lot of good drinks in the world, but I do want people once in a while to be like, I want that Gibson from Dear Irving. Mm-hmm. I want um, that old fashioned riff they made me last time at Rain's Law Room. Like it was just that extra, you know, there's so many bars in New York City to like the fact mm-hmm. that bars stand out to people is not lost on me. I think we worked really hard for it. That's so awesome. That's congratulations. That because you're right. I mean, there's and I'm in New York City. There's bars everywhere, right? So the fact that mm-hmm. Rain's Law Room or Dear Irving sticks out to a, a certain population is pretty freaking cool. That's awesome. Um, I did yep. look at the menu. I would order the Amber Old Fashioned or the Sweater Weather. Those are the two that really spoke oh, to me. Yeah. <laughs> so the the Emerald Fashion is the number one seller at the moment. Really? So, yeah, you picked a winner. And sweater weather is funny because it's uh, I mean it's delicious and it is like it's so approachable. It's bourbon and apple cider, delicious. But then a little palo cortado, uh, which is a, one of the drier sherries, a little bit of almond, um, a little bit of lemon, and uh, some orgeat, which is also an almond syrup. Mm-hmm. Like it's just that extra layer that makes it a little more thoughtful than delicious bourbon and apple cider. But I made that one year at Rains and it was kind of branching out for us to have like apple cider. We were <laughs> like so classically focused. And then the next year, these two guys came in as soon as it got cold and were like, are you making the sweater weather? And I was like, oh, well, we better because, mm-hmm. you know, like it had been a whole year like the weather changes and people are like, do you have the sweater weather again? And like, that's when I know I thought it was good, but like, yeah, I'm getting the feedback that like, Oh, this is something we're going to make year after year now. And we've been making that drink probably for six years or so. Do you just love that a drink that you created and someone comes in or some several, someone's come in and say, Hey, you made this drink for me last year. It was so awesome. Can you make it again? I mean, I'm sure that's like pat on your back, right? Yeah. Especially like, yeah, for like a year to go by or people yeah. that move and they come back on a New York trip and they're like, I had to come here and get this. Uh, there's one drink I've made called the Wildest Redhead. And it was a riff on like, I found an old recipe called a Wild Redhead. It was just lemon juice and cherry hearing. But the name was like so good that it had to live on, right? So I made it with like some scotch and some allspice, still the lemon and cherry hearing. And one time this table came in and it wasn't on the menu at the moment, but they were like, can you make this drink called a wild, it's redhead. I'm pretty sure it originated from this bar. And I was like, 
Number one, yes. Number two, I am the wild redhead. So you are here on the right night. And they were visiting from Boston and that's where they had it first. And it was just like, it was bar magic. You know, it was like, I was there on that night. Mm -hmm. They had had this drink from my coworker that moved to Boston. And, you know, I knew it like made their night for it to be like that extra level of like, oh, and I'm going to make it for you. That's so awesome. Yay. First of all, yay for redheads. Second, yes. <laughs> scratch scratch my drink order. I want that. I want the wildest redhead. You have you have to, yeah. right? You have to order the wildest redhead. Especially this time of year. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's just that's super cool. And I also <laughs> wrote down um you know, you were saying as far as when it come when it when it came to things that you were interested in creative-wise, you said theater, you were never really a theater kid, but you kind of are putting on a show in in some fashion now in in your mm-hmm. career because i mean really when the bartender's making the cocktails that's who i look at i mean ev- all eyes are on you in certain situations and it is very theatrical depending on your style behind the bar right yeah for me it kind of lines up that i was a very good assistant as well because i do like the background element of like i am part of this but i am not it's not a solo show mm-hmm. um and like you're going to get back to your conversation and then I'm going to pop back in and it's a little, maybe it's more interactive and that's what I like about it. Um, But it is because I'm, I can be quite reserved and quiet. I think I've like grown out of it a bit, but especially when I was younger, it's part of, I had a horrible stage fright. Um, (laughs) Like I would always want to part and then be like, Oh, absolutely not. I can't do that. Um, I think, yeah, I like the the team element and the like Mm -hmm. interactive of like, I'm here for a minute and then I'll be back and now it's about you. Uh, But I do like that constant energy of working behind the bar. Yeah. Oh, I bet. And you mentioned there have been some really fun and interesting moments where um, not you were the focus of someone, someone's special something, but you were there. Mm -hmm. You witnessed it. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm assuming lots of lots of engagements, but like other you know, announcements, or I'm sure, I'm sure you probably heard some really good stuff behind the bar. <laughs> yeah, my favorite, one of my favorite times of year is January to be working, which is after right after the holidays. And to me, it clicked for me a few years ago that in November and December, people are so busy with work sure. uh, engagements and client meetings and hosting people like January, people are hanging out with who they want to hang out with. Like the girlfriends are together, mm-hmm. the like office gossip is happening, but it's like, I just like, it clicked for me that, oh, these are people that like, oh my God, we haven't seen each other in two months. Like we're mm-hmm. going out on Wednesday, we're having some drinks. And I love, like, I love that part of like, you're here with the people you really want to be here with. Um, and you're kind of, yeah, I get to overhear everything that's happened the past couple of months, uh, but January is a really fun time to work. <laughs> Um, I am the person who uh, my husband ab- absolutely hates it. If we're somewhere, whether it's a winery or a restaurant, and I can hear the conversation like people are having behind me or at the table next to me, he's talking to me and I'll be like, hold on one second. Hold on. I need to wait. Yeah. Hold on. It's getting good. <laughs> yeah. It's bad. Actually, it's really bad. I'm super nosy when it comes to that. But I'm just, you know, he'll be saying something about something that happened at work. And I'm like, honey. She's getting a divorce because her husband cheated on her and th- he yeah. had an affair and and now she's worried about the kid and, and where the kid's going to go. And he's just like, oh my God, stay out of other people's conversations. And it's just too good. So to be, that would be super, <laughs> that would be super fun to yeah. be listening into all these conversations as you're working. Yeah. And sometimes we'll give people like a little list, like, oh, I can tell they're looking for somewhere to eat later. Um, or they're in mm. town for the weekend, like where else should they go? And most of the time it goes over really well. People right. are thankful, and once in a while people are like, oh, so you've just been here the whole time listening. And you're like, yeah, well, yes, but also you should have this pizza. It's great. Right. Right. <laughs> also don't talk so loud. Maybe. I don't know. Like, Hey, you know, you, you did have this meeting in public. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about Dame Hall of Fame. You, uh, help you co-founded this event. Mm -hmm. Uh, You said Lynette too, right? Yeah. Lynette and I, Misty Kalkafin from Boston and Kitty Amon also from Boston. Okay. So Tales of the Cocktail is a basically a global cocktail conference. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely grown over the years. And I think it was 
2010. So basically it's a weekend in about a week in July in New Orleans and there's oh. seminars uh, hosted by, you know, industry experts. And sometimes it's tasting through like mm -hmm. really rare rum, but sometimes it's more uh, like business oriented mm -hmm. or um, like cocktail and spirits focused. So there's all these seminars and then there's events at night and, you know, little uh, attached events to this big conference. So I think it was 2010, Lynette, Misty, Lynette, Misty, Kitty and I did, um, a, it was called a spirited lunch and we called it ladies who lunch. And it was this like kind of two or three hour block of time. And basically it was like a round table lunch. And we had usually a master distiller or blender at each table, one of us. And then like Julie Reiner was there who runs Clover Club. Um, and flatter and lounge at the time. And, you know, it was a lot of industry ladies there to like get dressed up and have lunch. But through each course, there was a conversation. And so like Lisa Laird, who runs Laird's Applejack and took that family business over, talked about her beginning and being, um, you know, the daughter instead of the son that takes over this family business. Mm. And uh, the women that run Machu Pisco talked about having that idea and bringing this, their Peruvian American, bringing a spirit from Peru into the States and, you know, overcoming all this. And it was, it sold out and there was a waiting list and the energy behind it was just really positive. Mm -hmm. And people were talking about it so much. Um, and the energy, it was just like a wonderful room to be in. And so many people were thankful for, it was just really the conversation and like opening the door and like the way it was built was great with like the conversation points, the food. And then you went back to your table and you, you know, chatted with a smaller group and sure. then we came back together. Um, so Tails wanted to make it an official event. So the next year it became Dame's Hall of Fame and it was a way to recognize women in the industry. They do have a larger called Spirited Awards, but at that point there was not a lot of women winning or even nominated. So mm -hmm. it was a separate way to acknowledge women in the industry. Mm. Always a pioneer, like someone that had, like Lisa Laird's, you know, taken over this business yeah. or Audrey Saunders who started Pega Club and then kind of a younger contingent of women. And it was the big thing about it is that it's peer nominated. So mm -hmm. it just means a lot to the winners that it's their own people in the industry that nominated them and then voted for them. And we always had uh, female master blenders, distillers for our sponsors. So uh, we had it at various uh, women-owned restaurants. So it was holistically trying to support as much as we could from all elements. And over the years, it changed a little bit here and there. Um, Tails has also changed ownership. And this uh, iteration has been great because we're we're also back to like having this balance of uh, a pioneer. There's a more international element now, mm -hmm. which is really fun to watch the cocktail scene grow over the world. Um, but at the end of the day, it means so much that it's really peers celebrating peers. Mm -hmm. um, and now uh, the Pioneer Award is wrapped up into the Spirited Award. So now it's a big uh, official award. So it's been it's been fun to watch like the program grow over the years as things, you know, we have a lot of the same challenges, but we've made a lot of progress. There's more of us now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's it's evolved a bit, but it's a, it's a great, I guess, philosophy to, to yeah. still stand behind. Well, for sure. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and that whole idea of women helping women. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And part of how we got together was uh, uh, Misty and Kitty were part of this women's cocktail group called Lupec in Boston. And they were doing all these fun events always with a charity element or mm -hmm. like a women's shelter or a clothing drive. And Lynette and I have always been on this, like, if you offer people a way to eat and drink, like, you'll get some is some charity money out of it or like, mm -hmm. you know, make it a party with this other element and you can, we can do so much more together than separately trying to support something. So, and we just loved what they were doing in Boston and we were like, look back Boston. It's so great. We have to do it in New York. And yeah. then when we were, we had like, this idea for lunch, like it had to be all four of us. It couldn't just be one of us doing it. Yeah, no. And I think it's even a step above not only helping each other, you're celebrating each other. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that whole idea of a high five. Hey, you're doing something really great. Nice work. And it's being recognized. I think that's, yeah, that goes a step above helping. And the, 
the past couple were virtual, uh, of course, with mm -hmm. Tales. But and for me, it was like an, another layer of I was so amazed by the people that, you know, got online and figured out a platform or uh, started a podcast or started classes because mm -hmm. I was like on and off frozen during COVID. I was like, I don't have a great idea. Like, mm -hmm. I don't have the energy to build this thing. And like the people that did, I was like, I'm nominating you. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. Speaking of the the P word, the pandemic, um, how, you know, I've actually, I just interviewed a chef, a New York City chef that just opened a restaurant, I think it was late 2019, and then had to basically shut everything down. It's a story that we hear time and time again. Mm -hmm. um, you're working, 2020 rolls around, and New York City especially. I mean, it just, everything shut down. No warning, really. Yeah, it was basically, um, you know, I've been watching the morning show and like reliving this kind of like build up to like, what is going on? I think it's right. just the flu or it's like the cold and like, it's serious, serious. And then it was really like within a week in New York uh -huh. that a business really went down. So there was the element of like, well, even if we're allowed to stay open and no one's coming out, right? what's the point? And right. like, we all feel like, what's the risk for us mm -hmm. being around all these people? Um, and then when we're going to close on Monday and it was St. Patrick's Day weekend, and then the city was like, no, you don't get St. Patrick's Day weekend. Like, I think it was Thursday night or Friday. We closed a day early, but it, I think it was a Friday that it was like eight o'clock. It was done. Yeah. And we definitely closed up the bar like it would be two or three weeks because I went back later and I was like, that was not the most detailed cleanup, but we all thought we'd yeah. be back. Yeah. You, yeah. No, I mean, no one knew really. How long were you guys closed? Yeah. We were closed. Um, so we were supposed to reopen like in, this is 2020 mm -hmm. in July, but that was kind of a false start. So we opened again. So March to about the end of September. Then we were open again for about eight weeks. We were closed for the holidays again. And then we opened Valentine's Day weekend. I will never forget that of 2021. We were allowed to open again and we got absolutely crushed. And oh, not, not in a good way. <laughs> well, it was like, in a way, I always say like, so many of us were just kind of home in our bartender bubble that we were like, are people <laughs> even going to go back out? And every time we reopened, people were like, absolutely, we'll be there. You know, it wasn't crazy. And also we were like 25%, but people were right. definitely out and definitely ready to come back. Um, a certain group was for sure. And, but Valentine's day was like a big reopening after mm -hmm. all the holidays had been closed and we're a date bar. We're romantic, mm -hmm. you know? So it was, just really busy. We're all out of practice. You know, it was just, it was in a way reassuring, but also like, whew, I almost cried. It was mm. intense. <laughs> I hope people were nice to you. People were nice. Um, I mean, it was, it was just a rough service, but I did kind of notice, which was a bit of a bummer that like, so we reopened three times. The, the first time it was like a month. People were like, thank God you're here. Wow. Amazing. Okay. We'll wait. We can't sit at the bar. No problem. Then it was like two weeks. And then after, like after Valentine's day, people were like, I can't get Friday at eight. And they're like, no, like, where are you? We're in the same city. There's all these rules. Like, or people would like knock on the door after 11 and we had to close at 11 and be like, Oh, and I didn't, I don't know if it was ignorance or like other people weren't following the rules, but I was just like, no, we're not open. Like we're not allowed to be. Yeah. Hello. What, what's, the, what's the question here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, it's, um, it blows it, my mind you know. a bit to learn that people <clears throat> have been not nice, rude to, um, mm. servers and, and, and others in restaurants. I just, as during this time, it's like, we have enough going on. Just, just be nice. Don't, yeah, don't and, you know, when I still when I do something, when I go to dinner, like I went to see some music a couple months ago, mm -hmm. I was like, so excited to be mm -hmm. out. I was like, oh, I'm doing a thing. And you know, I'm still like, <laughs> I'm still actually really grateful for it. So mm -hmm. I feel like just from like a, I don't know, like a mood perspective, like, why do you want to go out like that? I'm still really happy that I get Same. to sit down and someone serves me food. Like, 
we didn't have it for almost two years. I know. So I, I don't know. take it for granted. Yeah. And for us here in, in Oregon, it was a little bit back and forth, kind of, I mean, very similar think places were open and then they were closed and then they were open. And the, um, liquor commission here actually at one point decided it was okay to sell cocktails to go, which was Mm -hmm. a huge thing for all of the local bars. Because again, bartenders are desperate to go back to work. So not only do they get to go back to work, but they're not just doing other things. They were, they were making cocktails to go, which was a huge, um, that was a big deal. That was a big deal when that happened. Yeah. They're trying to bring that back here because we had a small window of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have, I have heard that people really want it back. So we'll see. It's always like, it's cool to see as much as it was stressful. It was really fun to see like the creativity with some of that to go stuff and what people were doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Evolving. Right. I mean, in, mm-hmm. in some fashion, you're, you're moving along with the times, even if it was temporary. And, you know, we all joke about the pandemic and how we all needed a cocktail. We did. We really did. It was a stressful time. Oh, yeah. I was like, I was doing these like, uh, you know, some zoom classes, but also I would just do like Instagram live, these little happy mm-hmm. hours for a while nice. on the Dear Irving account. And I was like, I can do all of this. I cannot wait to pay someone to do it for me. And I'm on unemployment. Like, and I still want to go buy a drink. Like you Mm -hmm. realize that like, this is something that's like, it can seem uh, like frivolous or a luxury, but also like it's part of your life. And why do we pay this much money to be in New York city? If we're not like going to have cool things and meeting people and being in a different space. Amen. Do you have a favorite Mm -hmm. drink? Something you just love to make? Ooh, um, I know. It's a loaded question. I'm a big, like, mood mood drinker, depending, um, you know, like, where I am in the day. I'm also a big gin and tonic drinker. Hmm. It's, like, my retirement plan to have a gin and tonic every day at four. <laughs> and that's when I'll know, like, I'm done. I'm done. So I love gin and tonics. Um, a Boulevardier is my favorite, like, nightcap Um the, actually, the Amber Old Fashioned that you were mentioning, which is a half-aged rum, half-bourbon Old Fashioned with peach bitters, was something we all used to drink as kind of a shift drink at the end of the night at Reigns because, you know, you can kind of clean up and kind of sit there for a minute. It's going to get just mellow and change, but always be delicious. So, yeah, some drinks just come out of stuff that we mm-hmm. really love. Mm-hmm. And we're like, do you want to try this thing that we all drink every night? Mm-hmm. I discovered the Boulevardier probably about five years ago, and it's one of my favorite kind of winter drinks, right? Cause it's, it's, yeah. it's a little heavy, but, um, yeah, I discovered Campari and man, life changed instantly. Yeah. Yeah. Boulevardiers are, I feel like it's one of those drinks that, you know, you don't think about for a while and you, uh-huh. like, yeah, a chilly night or after a dinner or something, you're like, I need to find a bar stat that will make me a Boulevardier. <laughs> Perfect. Um, do you have a favorite booze, a favorite spirit, something that you just really love to play with? Probably gin and bourbon, depending. Um, those are my probably like what I would mostly, you know, I always have some at the house. Um, things that I both love, you know, because I love a simple drink like a gin and tonic. But then you always have like a nice gin for a martini. And a martini before dinner is something I've rediscovered post pandemic mm-hmm. that it just feels like such a nice thing to do for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also a big champagne drinker. And I love Um, just having a bottle of champagne at home, but also like a nice spritz or French 75, Mm -hmm. uh, a bubbly drink. I just always kind of hits for me. Yeah. Um, Megan, I think you and I would get along fabulously. (laughs) We'd have a nice cocktail hour. That's for sure. (laughs) Yes. That was for a brief moment in high school. My nickname was Bubbles and I do love bubbles. I love anything with, with bubbles in it. It's just happy, right? Exactly. It's like, I don't know, tiny bit of joy at 5.30 p.m. What could be, you know, what could be better than that? <laughs> For sure. Um, awesome. Well, you've been you've been a lot of fun. Um, if I'm ever in, in New York City, I want to come see you at Rain's Law Room or Dear Irving, yes. right? And you guys are open and, and functioning right now all as well. Yeah, we're open seven days a week now. We're back to being open late. Uh, actually, we're all working on new cocktail menus. So 
for you or anybody out there that's coming to New York City in February or after, please come by. There'll be new treats. How fun. When you are looking to create, we'll get to the final three in just a second, but when you're looking to create a new bar menu, um, are you are you looking at new trends? Are you looking at those, like any sort of new spirits that have come out? I mean, what, what are you looking for when you create that new menu? Definitely new spirits that have come out mm-hmm. um, is always fun for us because yeah, sometimes it feels like you've made everything at some point. <laughs> Although now there is so much that you have to be a bit discerning about like, okay, what's worth bringing in, um, especially in like in a small space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're always listening for like feedback from the guests, which is where it becomes really interactive with the staff. Like if people are always looking for something that we don't have a great answer to, I always say, you know, a couple of years ago it was spicy drinks, you know, have become so popular and mm-hmm. now we're better at it. But at first we were like, oh, we only have like a couple options. It's just not something that we've really done before. So that pushed us to be more creative. So yeah, kind of a balance of what we're excited about and what people are asking for. It also seems that um, bourbon and whiskey have become somewhat trendy in the last few years. Would you say that's Mm -hmm. accurate? Yeah, definitely bourbon, especially. Um, Although rye had a big comeback Mm -hmm. with the whole cocktail movement. Now it's kind of... uh, uh, like luxury tequila is a big thing. Mezcal people are excited about. Mezcal. Um, yeah. I think I asked Lynette this question. Sorry. So many questions. Is there um, <laughs> a, a mistake that home home bartenders make a, a common mistake when they're, when they're shaking up a cocktail? Uh, I would say the big hosting mistake is people never have enough ice and really can never not have too much. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely people have have gotten better about it now, but if people make martinis in Manhattan's, vermouth is not something that people use on a daily basis. And it is a wine base, so it won't go off like as fast as a bottle of wine, but if you leave it out or people have had some bottles for years, it will definitely oxidize. And if you think you don't like martinis, it might just be the vermouth that you've had for too long. Interesting. Um, so it's always worth taking a fresh look at that. Yeah. I mean, I think about the bar I worked at in college and the vermouth was definitely in the speed rail. <laughs> so it was just sitting there for who knows long. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. And that taking care of your vermouth is a good home move. Okay. Take care of your vermouth. Can you put it in the fridge? Is that a thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just seal it, put it in the fridge. A lot of times it will come in smaller bottles. So if it's not something you're using all the time, you know, just buy a smaller bottle and you won't have the, unless you just want to have like a, okay, I have to drink a martini for a while because I've got this bottle. <laughs> right. I mean, that's fine by me as well. <laughs> Agreed. We just uh, restocked our sweet vermouth for those Boulevardiers. Yeah. Cause we had, exactly. we had been running, <laughs> running low. Um, super cool. Okay. Uh, Let's get to the final three. Best advice you've ever been given? So Audrey Saunders, as I mentioned from Pegu Club, we have done this charity event for Meals on Wheels every year for a long time. And one time she just, we were, you know, I forget what we were talking about exactly, but she was like, you know what? Don't take any shit. And I was like, okay, I won't. Um, But the, like the kind of second part of that was, to really trust your own palate and to, mm. I was kind of at the point where I really had developed reins as its own bar and not another, like I said, Pegu club or milk and honey. So it was, and also at a certain level of bar or in cocktails, people are always trying to sell you something and they can make it really seem like everyone's using this and everyone's drinking this. And, you know, don't feel that external pressure. Like I feel a very internal pressure to like keep the creativity in house to like really make this the menu mm. in the bar we want it to make. And now I have enough confidence that it's worked. People like it. They respond to it. I don't, I don't need to, you know, take any shit from outside and kind of morph it into what will work for a salesperson or something else. You know, it's really like trusting my own palate and abilities. Those are words to live by, by the way. Don't take any shit. Yeah. Who said that to you? <laughs> Audrey Saunders. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. What's your happy place? Oh, my happy place is uh, with my sister having like a, a sunset margarita, nice. which I'm always in charge of, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, margaritas are very popular in this house. How do you make your margarita? 
So I love rocks and salt. Okay. So I love a reposado tequila uh, in mine. So like classic uh, three quarters ounce of lime juice, one ounce of Cointreau, one and a half ounces of reposado tequila. But I also love, especially in the summer, you know, like a little fresh strawberry. We made watermelon margaritas mm-hmm. in the blender one night. Um, we had a lot of summer 2020 margaritas. So they went <laughs> a few different directions. <laughs> Uh, we in 2020, we discovered we call them boat drinks, just it's kind of like a Jimmy Buffett type of thing, but blended mm-hmm. um, the blended daiquiri, like the classic daiquiri yeah. with lime and rum, right? And a little sugar, but blended mm-hmm. man on a hot day. Those are yeah, perfection. It's exactly. way too early on, on the West Coast for me to be talking <laughs> about boozy drinks. Okay, uh, final of the final three, in all things food and drink, what do you crave? What, what, are, what just always sounds good to you? Rosé champagne and French fries. Yeah, this is why I think we would be best friends forever. French fries <laughs> and pink bubbles, yes. Yeah. Yes, always. I've heard Madonna is also in this club. That's like her, vo- her vice. I don't know how many French fries she actually eats, but I mean, it's a cool club. Yeah, for sure. Okay. You, me, <laughs> and Madonna, <laughs> French fries <laughs> and pink bubbles. And if they're truffle fries, all the better. Like just give, I'm here for all of that. Give it to me. Super cool. Um, Megan Dorman, award-winning mixologist, bartender, and educator. Um, if people want to see what you're up to, they can follow you on Instagram. Um, but also yes, I did. At Ginger Ricky. So mm-hmm. it's a little uh, play on the redhead cocktails again. At Ginger Ricky on Instagram. And my website is megandorman.com. Perfect. That's where I learned all sorts of things about you. Um, <laughs> you've been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And um, I just, I love the fact that you and Lynette and so many other ladies are really not only supporting each other, but celebrating each other. That's the key. Super awesome. Okay. Thank you. More celebrating. Thank you, Trish. An Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Glose. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More, An Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.